Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 97, being recorded on Saturday, August 19th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We took a little break. Jason was on vacation, so I took a little podcast vacation. Um, and what we found is over the summer, it's harder to book guests. So we, we took some breaks from guests. So today we're going to be talking about news, but before we jump into the news, Jason, what's new with you? I am super excited. Uh, cause one of my good friends, uh, launched his business in a new, um, city this, this month. Oh wait, that's you. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, yep. So the still involved at Channel Advisor, exec chairman, uh, but spending the bulk of my time at a new company called Spiffy, which is on-demand car wash. And we launched in Dallas uh, in early August. So we're excited about that. And we've already added something like 50 office parks in Dallas. So uh, the Dallas folks, the people of Dallas really love having their car cleaned there, apparently. I'm happy to hear that. Hopefully uh, some of our Dallas-based fans will get a chance to try it out and they can uh, leave us some feedback on Facebook about uh, whether you're going to go two for two on your entrepreneurship or not. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear how they uh, enjoy the service. <laughs> awesome. Uh, other than uh, I imagine that's taken up a bunch of time. Has it been a good summer? It has been. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of uh, I'm deep into back to school, got uh, all the kids back to school. So that was uh, have two in college and one in middle school. So a lot of, a lot of variety going on at the back to school this year. I, I have heard a rumor that there's this increasing trend of uh, parents uh, fulfilling all their back-to-consumer purchase needs with this uh, newfangled e-commerce thing. Did you try any of that? We did a lot of e-commerce around the back-to-school time. Yes, absolutely. I'm happy to hear it. That's an important dress rehearsal for all of us for for uh, the big holiday season. But uh, did you try any of the like back-to-school-specific services by chance? I did not. And okay. One of the things that kind of fails at college is their mailrooms aren't open until, you know, like a week. They've been there a week. So you can't just kind of like ship all this stuff there and pick it up. Unfortunately, you have to kind of like ship it to your house and then take it with you. That is fascinating. I would have thought that problem is addressed. And I think we're going to have some news tonight that's loosely related to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. I'll leave that as a spoiler to keep people waiting until after the banter is over and we get into the news. It's a tease. If you tell, it's a spoiler. If you if you don't, then it's a tease teaser. That's a, a, a fair point. Thank you very much for correcting me. How was your vacay? Uh, it was great. Uh, we uh, my family's all from the Midwest, from the Detroit area. My in laws, so uh, they they rent a, a beach house somewhere on the on the uh, shores of Lake Michigan uh, every summer. So so we took the family up there and uh, got to hang out with all our nieces and nephews, which was a lot of fun and. Uh, this is a fun week in Chicago uh, because it's the air show. So the Blue Angels are in town, and they they fly directly over my condo. So I got to uh, hear hear and see some uh, uh, frighteningly close together jets flying around. And isn't that a Michigan Beach week? The week you don't have Starbucks, and have you recovered from that? 
you're going to have to give me more detail. I, I'm not aware there is a week when I don't have Starbucks. Okay, I, I thought that's a week where you don't have access to Starbucks. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there have been occasions where we were so remote that I was not able to have Starbucks, and so I actually travel with my own Starbucks syrup uh, accoutrements and then a Nespresso machine to pull my own shots. Um, but this summer, we've uh, tended to move around venues, and so this summer wasn't remote enough. Um, so I was able to go to a, a, a Starbucks embedded in a mire um, that was only a few miles from our, our rental place. So I got to uh, spend some time in uh, Meyer, which is a great Midwest uh, hypermarket that competes uh, pretty successfully with Walmart. And then uh, uh, I got my full fix of Starbucks. Good. Good. I was worried about it. I appreciate the concern and thanks for, yeah, that's funny that you remember that. <laughs> um, one thing we want to do is send a shout out to one of the friends of the show, Billy May. He uh, was at Abercrombie. He was on, uh, Jason, can you have one of the interns look up the episode that Billy was on? One of our most popular episodes. And he has just recently been announced that he is the CEO of Sir Latab. So congrats to Billy. Um, I don't know the specifics of it, but Jason, I'm pretty sure being on the show can give him credit for that career move. So, um, you know, I think once you're on the Jason and Scott show, your your career is on a meteoric you know, rocket ship kind of a thing. Um, we had Peter Cobb is now uh, on the board of Discount Shoe Warehouse. Um, so a lot of uh, Greg Pulsifer is over at General Mills now. So a lot of our, our guests have been moving up in the world. Kevin Ertel went to Nike. Just I, do it. I do. I feel like there's a, a, a basically unbroken string of your career catching fire once once you get on the Jason and Scott show. Uh, and, of course, the loyal listeners will remember that Billy was on episode 23. He was one of our earliest guests. Um, and while this is statistically not true, I've always promised Billy that I would say it was our uh, most listened to episode. Yeah, good. Cool. Well, let's jump into the e-commerce and retail news with some Amazon news. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, so a couple new interesting things uh, on the Amazon blotter this this week or the last couple weeks. Uh, one that that I think is particularly interesting is that Amazon has announced a new a delivery method that they're calling instant pickup. And so the notion here is that you can pick up items two minutes after you place an e-commerce order for them. Um, and so when you first hear that, you go, wait a minute, that's that's um, the logistics of that are mind-boggling. How would they ever do that? And what it really is at the moment is it, there's a handful of pickup locations that Amazon has, and I think they might exclusively be on college campuses at the moment. Um, so you you referenced some of the mailroom problems on college campuses. E-commerce has been a huge disruption to, to uh, college campus mailrooms. And one of the remedies has been that Amazon has opened their own pickup depot in a number of college campuses, which is this pretty fancy operation. And so reading between the lines of the instant pickup announcement, uh, they're using those college campus pickup depots, and they're going to pre-inventory an assortment of the most uh, popular ordered items. Um, presumably, over time, those will be the items that are most needed with with no lead time. And uh, 
you know, they'll have sort of a, a locker type thing. And once you place an order, they'll have someone that pulls that out of inventory and puts it in the locker for you uh, instantly. So when you uh, need a new uh, 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 lightning headphone for your iPhone or a new battery or something like that, um, you'll, you'll be able to get it right away. And I, I almost think of it as sort of a, a big version of the the um, sort of commerce vending machines that you see uh, at, at some big businesses and airports that have like the, you know, the, the most popular Best Buy items. Yeah. And there's some food places that are kind of working this way now where you, you know, there's a kitchen and they put these, the food into kind of like a locker system. Um, didn't you go to a noodle shop that did that? Is that am I remembering that right? Yeah. there uh, And I'm not going to remember the, the name off the top of my head, but it's like a healthy um, uh, Asian themed bowl restaurant there's a lot of like stir fried stuff uh, in the bay area and it's a completely um no human interaction you you order on uh on basically ipads and then your your food is delivered like you know uh, the kitchen puts the food in a locker and you open that locker and uh you you get the food shockingly quick and it's delicious and healthy and uh they don't have to pay a, a person to to talk to you other than when I was there, it was early and they had a few concierges out there that were trying to teach you how to use the iPads. If you couldn't figure it out. Yeah. Very cool. One, uh, one quick one I saw Amazon stock was down like 5% one day. And you know, when you're a thousand dollars, that's, that's, uh, like 50 bucks. So I was like, Holy cow, what's going on? So, uh, couldn't find anything, couldn't find anything. And then I looked and, uh, president Trump had tweeted that, you know, a, a pretty negative Amazon tweet and, I think what happens is he gets pretty cheesed off by the the press uh, and Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post um, and creates this kind of feedback cycle. So his tweet was, Amazon is doing great damage to tax paying retailers. Town, cities and states throughout the U.S. are being hurt. Many jobs being lost. So, you know, Wall Street's reaction to that is, wow, that increases the chances of some kind of a DOJ monopoly kind of a thing. So nothing. You know, not clear what's going to happen there. There's obviously a lot of weird things that happen in the Twitter world and with politics and whatnot. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, for no reason uh, that the stock was down a pretty material amount. And then it was, ended up being kind of a, a tweet from from the White House. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like regardless of how you feel about any of that, there's at least one slight irony there. A lot of people have observed that that Amazon can basically drop a, a press release um, and uh, wipe out, you know, a huge piece of the the market cap of, of uh, any competitor. And so it's at least somewhat humorous to think that there's at least a person that can drop a tweet and uh, put a little dent in, uh, in Amazon's net worth. Um, listeners probably know this, but the, you know, so, so Jeff Bezos does own the Washington post. Amazon doesn't right? like that frequently gets mentioned um, in the, in the Trump versus Bezos uh, disputes. Um, but it's also pretty factually untrue that Amazon doesn't pay taxes. Like we, we assume when Trump is talking about that, he's talking about collecting sales tax, which again, technically, uh, merchants don't pay sales tax. They collect sales tax that consumers pay. Um, but, uh, as hopefully most listeners know by now, Amazon collects sales tax in, uh, the majority of markets that they're in. So they cut deals with a bunch of states um, you know, there are various timelines for when those will kick in, uh, those will kick in, but, but, uh, many of them have already kicked in in the big States. And so Amazon's collecting an awful lot of sales tax. And I, I haven't seen a lot of this yet, but I would expect this year, like based on some of this negative press, um, I would expect to start seeing some PR from Amazon 
I'll bet you they're one of the largest sales tax collectors um, in the country, right? So, you know, if, if, if in the U.S. we were just talking about this, you know, there's lots of estimates on their GMV. If, if they're selling $120, $150 billion worth of stuff, and if they're collecting sales tax on 75% of that, um, that's going to put them in the top 20 uh, sales tax collectors in the U.S. Yeah. The, what he could be talking about is corporate tax. So, you know, Amazon doesn't have profits, uh, and then they have these very huge uh, NOLs, net operating losses from from the past. So, you know, comparing them to a Macy's or something, they also have a much lower tax rate from a corporate tax perspective. So hard to know exactly which tax is being talked about there. Fair enough, but Macy's doesn't have a lot of profits right now either. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. Um, and this is one I missed from a little while ago, uh, but the end of, um, July, Amazon announced the expansion of a program we've talked about on the show a few times, the treasure truck. So this is a truck that tends to stock one item. It's based in Seattle. And every day of your, if you subscribe to this, uh, SMS list, they, they send you an SMS saying, Hey, the treasure truck has, uh, a deal, uh, 60 bucks for a Nintendo Classic this this uh, today only, and you can accept the deal on your phone, and the truck will come to a, a location near you, and you you pick up the the item. So it's kind of um, buy online, pick up at truck um, experience. Um, so I don't know exactly how you pronounce that acronym, BOPIT, um, maybe. And uh, that was in Seattle only. I had seen them send the truck to a couple special events like the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Um, and now it looks like they're expanding into six other cities. And uh, one of those cities is Chicago. Uh, so I, I have uh, signed up on the list. And hopefully uh, sometime this month I'll start getting, getting uh, deal texts. Cool. There's um, there two kind of dust-ups around Amazon private label. Uh, a editor at Quartz Magazine was digging through some of the trademark filings out there and found, you know, about twenty kind of unannounced private labels. Uh, and as you know, I do that Amazonscape, so I went through all these, and some of them, I would say, about half of them were right, and the other half, you know, what what happens is Amazon may file these trademarks, but then never do anything with them. Uh, big corporations have, you know, if someone has an idea, I'm sure they just fire off an email, the trademark gets created, and they may or may not use it. So some of the ones that were mentioned in there weren't really valid and that they're not actually being used for, for that. Or And then if you go to Amazon, it's so big, you, you see the things being sold, but when you dig into it, they're actually different brands, not the ones that they were thinking about. But anyway, that was interesting. Um, and then more recently, this week, uh, the, uh, the data company 1010 Data came out with some pretty interesting data around the private labels and some of the ones that I know our listeners have been really interested in are some of the apparel items. So um, this is the first time I've seen data on Larkin Row, Button Down, some of the newer ones, uh, Amazon Elements, which is more CPG. Um, and, for example, uh, the first half of 2017, this estimates – and this is you – know, I think what this is one of these companies that looks at the cash register receipts and, and emails um, – that, that people give them access to through some mechanism. And, you know, what they're saying is some of these, like, uh, let's pick on button down, did about a million dollars in the first half of the year. Seems low to me. I just kind of surprised it would be that low. Uh, but then some of the growth rates of these are, are pretty tremendous. 
uh, and um, you know some of the categories like batteries, Amazon is really starting to get to be over half of of the sales of batteries online and things like that. So continuing to watch private label is something that that you know we encourage brands and retailers to really think about how that fits in with their strategy. Yeah, uh, and it, it it does seem to keep expanding. Uh, two things that kind of jumped to my mind when I saw that news. Um, number one, there is this kind of gray area about what is an Amazon private label. Um, so I think uh, one example, there was an article that went around talking about um, how Amazon had launched a private label wine. And then, uh, you know, Amazon uh, doesn't own their own own vineyards and they don't have their own wine label maker that's making this wine. So they're, they're obviously paying someone to, to uh, produce this wine and the wine's getting sold on in some other label and Amazon kind of denied it was one of their brands and that it's, it's actually like a, um, you know, a seller that created a new brand that they were selling on the three P marketplace on Amazon. Um, and so, uh, or the one I, or as a one P seller to Amazon. And so there, there kind of is this interesting thing, you know, if, if Amazon encourages a manufacturer to make a product to fill a gap versus Amazon commissioning a manufacturer there, you know, there's kind of this, this, uh, gray area that's, that's hard for a observer that just sees that, that some new, new brand popped up on Amazon that, that they're not familiar with. Um, is it a true, Amazon owned brand or is it a Amazon encouraged brand, I guess is the, uh, the distinction there. Um, and one of the things I always like to, uh, joke with clients about is I'm trying to get people to stop saying private label, particularly in context to Amazon, right? Like, cause private label had this original connotation that was, there's a national brand. Um, and, then there was a private label and the private label was intended to be on the shelf in the store next to the national brand and have largely the same value prop as the national brand without all the marketing uh, at a lower cost. And so, you know, the consumer had to decide, am I getting a bear branded aspirin or am I going to get a generic aspirin for a little less money? Um, many of the Amazon products are designed to have unique value propositions. And so they're, they're trying to, not build private labels, although some some probably are fit the classic definition of private labels like Amazon Basics. But many of these brands are intended to be uh, standalone brands that have their own value propositions um, and you know have their have their own demand and beat the national brands not exclusively on price but based on on features and and other uh, aspects of the product. And the the most glaring example. Um, is of course their most successful um, in-house brand, which is Echo, right? Um, or uh, and so I'm sure if you're a product manager at Sony that's responsible for Bluetooth speakers, you don't think of Echo as a private label product. You think of it as a national brand that's frankly kicking their butt. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Maybe we'll do a deep dive on this and come up with a new framework for people to think about it. Oh no, I have to think of some new thoughts in addition to the ones I just shared. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you can do it. All right. Just had vacation. Your your brain is fresh. Thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> one quick one. Um, Amazon should have closed the Whole Foods deal by now, but um, the, the regulatory kind of review of it is still underway. So they've extended that. And uh, to my knowledge, it was pretty open-ended. Uh, they didn't kind of say a week or two weeks. So that deal still has not closed. 
Um, and then there was another rumor while you're on vacation that Amazon's getting into event tickets, that they see that as a uh, an opportunity where the customer experience isn't very great and that they want to kind of get in there and compete with the Ticketmaster slash Live Nations of the world, which I, uh, as a guy that buys a fair number of tickets, I would love to see more competition in that space. Yeah, and I thought I read a rumor that they may have even tried to acquire or partner with Ticketmaster, and when that didn't work out, that they... Uh, now seem to be moving in the direction of building their own service. Mm, okay, I didn't see that. Yeah, well, I, uh, that time time will tell. It certainly would not surprise me. It certainly seems like it it fits the Amazon mo, and uh, you know they want to be the everything store. Yeah, and we just got to the end of earnings season, and there's some some new kind of July comps that that came out as well. And uh, I thought it was interesting. I saw a report that. Uh, there's a company that goes through all the different transcripts and looks for different indexes, them all. And they reported for the S and P 500 over 15% of the conference calls with wall street mentioned Amazon in some way. Uh, and that's a high watermark. And it, it's interesting when you kind of go through and then they actually will put it in the show notes. We, we don't have time to do it, but they go through, you know, some of the highlights and you have the real estate companies all talking about it, grocery, CPG, all the brands that are out there and of course retailers um, and then specialty stores like auto parts and things of that nature. And um, you know, it's kind of interesting here that, you know, to your point earlier that, that everyone has to have an Amazon story all of a sudden. And it used to be just kind of a retail thing, but now they're you know, very, just in like the last three years, their, their purview has spread so wide that a very large swath of the, the public companies have to have kind of an answer to the Amazon question. Yeah, I wonder if UPS and FedEx were on that list of companies that mentioned them. They have in the past. I I, I absolutely have heard that, yeah. So I don't know if they were on the list or not. Yeah. Side note, uh, every time our intern asks for a raise, I remind him that his job could be to read all the S&P 500 uh, earnings transcripts and count how many times Amazon was mentioned. Um, so believe it or not, there is some, some, uh, digital shopper marketing news outside of the world of Amazon. Uh, and one of those is that the U S department of commerce, uh, published, uh, their, uh, Q2 data, um, which is a, a very useful data set that we, we always like to follow. Um, and I think they came out and said 16.3% growth for e-commerce, uh, in Q2 of this year. Yeah, yeah, and they uh, attribute half of that to Amazon, which is good. So, so when I kind of back through the math, as we've talked on the show here for a long time, a lot of a lot of folks didn't take into account the three P part of Amazon, um, but now uh, it looks like the Department of Commerce is actually factoring that in. So, uh, you know that that's pretty good to see them kind of catch up to that. Um, they come to a lot of the shows. The guys, the team that does this, and I think they actually listen to the podcast. So, shout out to them if they're listening. Um, I don't know if you've ever talked to them, but they um, really nice group of folks and they are they come to all the shows and try to kind of tune the data based on what they're hearing. And uh, I have given them that feedback a lot. So I don't know if it had any impact on them, including that in there, but it's good to see. Yeah, yeah. I'd be fascinated to hear how they sort of estimate 3P or what they're using as their 3P estimate to factor in there. Um, we should definitely have them on the show. I have met a few of them as well. Um, I will throw one counterpoint out there. Um, there, there are a fair number of detractors that don't 
feel that the the methodology that they use for e-commerce is entirely accurate, right? And I, I think it would be impossible for it to be perfect. I find it to be a super valuable data set. And one of the things that in general is really valuable about it is they've been using this consistent methodology for a long time. So you can kind of look at how things are trending and, and shifting over time. Um, but the their definition of e-commerce and what's in and out of that, like, you know, has a few things that... Um, you know, you you probably wouldn't agree. Uh, make make perfect sense if you were inventing uh, the categories from scratch. Yeah, and there, uh, I've gotten in a lot of arguments about this lately. Not arguments, but interesting discussions with people. And you know, so what what I also hear, and I don't know, uh, I haven't had time to dig into this, but you know, the other kind of devil's argument about this data set is it's a business survey. It's a small number of businesses the bulk of the businesses are kind of B2B kind of companies. So they're selling, you know, widgets and fasteners and cogs and gears and stuff. Um, so, um, so then my argument is, well, the Comscore data is very highly correlated. So it seems like it checks out and their argument is no, it goes the other way. Comscore actually, um, you know, uses as an input, the department of commerce data so that their data is lined with it. So, uh, I don't hundred percent know what to believe. Maybe we'll get someone on the uh, show and, and do a little panel where we can kind of, get someone to talk about the, you know, the veracity of this data. That, that would be a great show. We could get some of the, the panel guys like Comscore, 1010 Data, and the U.S. Department of Commerce, and we could have a shootout. Yeah. Jason and Scott show data wrestling match. I love it. Um, uh, the, some of the comps are out, and one of the big winners is TJ Maxx. They, their comps were up 6%. Uh, I think that's for July. Uh, and so that's pretty interesting. We, we've talked about this on the show where there's this kind of path where, uh, if you are a value oriented retailer, you're doing really well right now. So the dollar stores are doing well, the TJ Maxx's Ross stores, companies like that. Uh, if you're convenience oriented, which tends to fall over towards the e-commerce side, Amazon, et cetera, you're doing well. And the folks that are kind of stuck in the middle, if you're not value or convenience right now, uh, you're in a pretty bad spot. So, the Macy's, the um, the sports folks, uh, all those guys are really having tough comps right now. Yeah, and so that makes it all the more interesting. Like one of the categories you'd talk about is having a particularly tough time is apparel. Um, and Gap uh, announced their earnings, and they actually eked out uh, some slightly improved numbers this quarter. So I want to say uh, that their profits were up 1% this quarter, um, versus uh, being down to the previous quarter. So like that's certainly not lighting the, the world on fire, but um, the you know you, you certainly always like to be more profitable than you you were the previous quarter and in a category that's that's you know super distressed, um, that's an interesting data point. Um, I was I was joking around with one of the Forcer analysts on Twitter today. Uh, I would not take that news, you know, they're they're up against a really soft comp. And I would argue, you know, that a lot of the apparel industry and, and Gap is a perfectly uh, good example of it, um, have a lot of uh, institutional headwinds. I'm not sure I would take that, that uh, the nice uptick this quarter and, and uh, use that as a reason to invest in the, in the category. But uh, nevertheless, good news for the Gap. And uh, an interesting subtext in there, they announced they were piloting a new customer experience for them, which is buy online, pick up in store. And uh, for many listeners of this show, they might say, wait a minute, Gap wasn't offering buy online, pick up in store. That seems like 
table stakes for a, an omnichannel retailer. Uh, Gap has been one of the largest proponents and one of the earliest adopters of reserve online pickup in store. So their normal experience was, we won't charge you till you get to the store. Um, so you you'll reserve it. We'll pull the product. Uh, have it ready for you. And, you know, one of the main reasons you'd want to do reserve online instead of buy online is because you'd like that customer to come to the Gap store, discover a few other things that they didn't know they needed, and add them to the transaction. And that's easier to do when you have a reserve online. It also is kind of a lower threshold to get the customer to reserve because they don't have to uh, put any money down up front. And so they've been one of the big proponents of reserve online. And what's not said in the the earnings call um, that I'd be really interested in is, are they throwing the towel in on Reserve Online? Are they Have they decided that the pros and cons of, of BOPUS versus uh, Reserve are, are compelling enough that they're now shifting to what is the much more common industry practice? Um, uh, I don't know, but I'll, I'll certainly be uh, digging to see if we, if we can learn any more about what that shift's about. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any data, but my bet is when you survey customers like Reserve reserve and pick up is like a, you still have to wait in line, which is, you know, not convenient. So people want convenience. And if you're, if you're going to put your priority of, Oh, go pick up more stuff. We're not gonna make it convenient. So you'll buy more stuff that, that cheeses customers off in today's world. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. Um, and you know, there's, there's execution problems with both. Um, but you know, you, you, uh, I think one of the challenges in a store like gap is executing on these things. So, you know, when you reserve online, do you walk in the store and and those products really have been pulled for you and it's the right products and they had in stock what they said they had in stock? There, uh, There's a lot of things to go wrong. Um, and in some ways, when it's reserve online, there's a little less economic pressure on the on the store to execute. Um, and so that can then erode customer confidence in the service. Yeah, absolutely. One that I followed really closely um, that was pretty interesting is so. So we had the failure of Sports Authority, and uh, Dick Sporting Goods uh, was was down pretty substantially after their quarterly results. And the CEO, his name's Ed Stack, he had a pretty interesting quote here. I'll read a couple excerpts. Um, this was in when he got into the Q&A with Wall Street. They're, they missed on the – I think they kind of came in line on the top line, but then their bottom line, the profits weren't, weren't really there, and, and gross margins seemed to be under pressure. Um, and the CEO kind of went on a little bit of a rant, kind of a – you know, a therapy session. He said, there's, there's a lot of people right now in retail and the sports industry that are in panic mode. Uh, and by panic mode, he said, they, they're, they're freaked out about how they're pricing, how we're pricing. It's going to be, it's going to continue to be promotional and uh, at times irrational going forward. Well, you could imagine wall street didn't like that word irrational. So that, that was not well received. And, and you know what, I think I, I saw some notes that said, it's going to be a structural change for, for these guys where they're going to have to, you know, they're, they're, they introduced price matching with Amazon. They're going to have to just kind of take much lower gross margins that they've had going forward. So really big pressure there. And then another little piece that I thought listeners would be interested in um, is he kind of finished up and said, it's going to, it, it's continues to be very promotional, not only from retailers, but also from some of the brands on a direct to consumer basis. So, so you have this kind of like this crunch scenario where retailers are stuck in the middle. You've got the online guys like Amazon and they are much more efficient and they can they have a different model that, that has lower gross margins, lower prices, passes them on to the consumers. And then you have brands going direct on the other side. 
Uh, and he was specifically asked about Amazon uh, having Nike selling on there. And he said, you know, I don't even think we've seen anything. We're watching it very closely. We've talked to Nike a lot about it. So very interesting kind of um, kind of the in a crunch there with with the retailers. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't expect to see a lot of uh, uh, concerning behavior on Nike's part yet. But what can definitely happen is, you know, all the all these other players when this when the retailer closes, um, if you were Under Armour, Adidas, or Puma, you had a forecast for the year, and you built you you manufactured product based on that forecast. And part of that forecast was that there'd be a bunch of sports authorities that would each have to buy a certain amount of inventory to put on their shelves. And so when they stop buying that inventory because they're out of business or there's been retail consolidation or whatever, um, and the market gets flooded with uh, cheap product because some liquidator buys the existing inventory that those things happen, you as the manufacturer are suddenly not going to make your numbers. And so that likely is going to trigger a bunch of other, you know, bad behaviors that ultimately result in uh, Mr. Stack's observation, right? Like you could either try to sell that stuff to direct to consumer and you could get more promotional to do it. Um, you could get more promotional in, uh, you know, incentives you offer your, your surviving, uh, wholesale partners to get them to sell through more stuff. There's, you know, all like there, there's second and third tier effects on all of this stuff that, that, uh, create a negative spiral of momentum in the category. Yeah. Two other quick ones in this kind of same bucket. Um, uh, Foot Locker was asked about Amazon on their conference call, and the CEO kind of pounded his chest and said, "We don't worry about them. We have, you know, the latest and greatest in sneakers come to us, and Amazon doesn't get them." So uh, there's a long history of people that have said that Am- they're not worried about Amazon and uh, or Amazon can't compete that that are either out of business or going out of business. So the we should start a Jason and Scott pool where you know people that foolishly poke the bear, uh, the Amazon bear, end up paying for it down the line. Uh, and then another one, I did read an article where Under Armour, to your point earlier, they had some lines that were at a retailer. They liquidated some of them through Kohl's, and it ended up really kind of creating this bad cycle between – I forget who the other retailer was. Uh, it may have been Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, but it created some bad blood and, and ended up that you know that the other retailer didn't want that product line anymore, and then now it all just kind of has to go to Kohl's in more of a discount kind of a format. So so a lot of a lot of – gnashing of teeth out there in in the sporting goods category yeah and then uh i haven't followed it closely um but i i think we're waiting to hear for regulatory approval on cabela's bass pro shop so that's another like potential significant disruption in that space of those two guys um uh, uh merge uh, so another retailer earnings uh, that came out this month that's, to me, super interesting is uh, the largest retailer in the world, Walmart. Um, they had another um, slightly profitable quarter in the stores. Um, so I want to say they were up 1% or 2% or someplace between 1% and 2%. Um, so that, I, if, I, if memory serves, that's like the 12th consecutive quarter of brick-and-mortar growth for them. Um, and just to put that in perspective, not very many retailers have had, uh, uh, have done well 12 quarters in a row. So like there's an obvious inference to make that, uh, Walmart is, uh, b- uh, benefiting from a lot of the hardships that other retailers are, are, uh, experiencing and that they're, um, 
sort of well well positioned to weather the storm uh, with a, a little bit more elbow room than than uh, a lot of other retailers. Uh, but the super interesting thing is that their online growth was up sixty percent for the quarter uh, from from this quarter last year. And uh, to put uh, that in perspective, last quarter they were up sixty two percent. So that's now two consecutive cons- quarters with astronomical growth. Um, obviously, it's much easier to grow a small number than a big number. So you know it's almost. Uh, not worth comparing that to to Amazon, even though it is much faster growth than Amazon. But I'll remind everyone: uh, these guys are the second largest e-commerce site in the U.S. They're going to sell, you know, probably north of fifteen billion dollars this year. Um, and so, you know, if you think about the e-commerce industry is growing at about fifteen to eighteen percent, depending on which numbers you use. Uh, that Amazon is growing at like twenty five percent, and Walmart is growing at like sixty percent. Um, most of e-commerce isn't growing that fast if the two biggest players out there are way outperforming the rest of the market. Like usually in a mature market, you see exactly the opposite. You see everyone else growing faster than the the guys at the top of the ecosystem. So all super interesting. Um, and then I guess one other spin on that, like uh, Walmart has acquired a bunch of uh, companies that have meaningful e-commerce revenue. So obviously uh, – I mean, Jet's in these year-over-year numbers, but uh, Moose Jaw, Mod Cloth, Bonobos um, would all be net new. And so one, one, a cynic could look at this and say, oh, well, their, their e-commerce growth is way up because they, uh, through acquisition. Um, but they're claiming, they claimed last quarter, and I think they claimed again this quarter, that more than 50% of their growth is organic, yeah, yeah, I saw a Goldman Sachs report where they actually kind of backed into it, and their estimate was thirty percent organic growth, thirty percent from acquisition. So they they kind of put it right at that fifty percent. So I don't. Yeah. So even if so, so that still has them growing faster than Amazon. Um, I got one interesting context for this. This is the the growth in the Mark Glory era uh, when he took over for Neil Ash, um, and there is sort of a big shift in philosophy at Walmart. Like they, uh, Walmart really used to focus, uh, walmart.com used to focus on stuff you couldn't get in the store. So while they, they had a, you know, a couple million SKUs, they're, they're mostly trying to sell the stuff that people wouldn't traditionally buy from the store. So barbecue, swing set, things, things that were inconvenient to buy from a store. And the Mark Laurie era at Walmart is really about selling daily essentials online. And so that's a pretty big shift in philosophy You've seen the SKU count go way up at Walmart, um, and these these first two quarters tell me that that strategy is really working. And uh, the reason I point that out is that's a really interesting um, shift in philosophies. You know, is e-commerce best uh, suited to to fill in the gaps that are hard to do in brick and mortar stores and sort of round it out, or should your e-commerce offering really mirror your in-store offering and cater to the the same customer base. And it seems like at least in Walmart's case, um, they're, they're doing best by, by shifting to, uh, try to meet the same kind of needs online that they've traditionally met in store. Yeah. As a star Wars toy collector, I get to go to lots of Walmarts. And one thing I've definitely noticed in the last six months is a lot, a lot more integration, um, with online in the store. So, you know, just little things like they have these polls out front that keep 
cars from driving into the Walmart, I think. And now they have these kind of sleeves on them that talk about online. The online pickup, buy online pickup, would be in the very back of the store, and it was never staffed. Now it's moved back to the front of the store. Um, a couple of my Walmarts are really pushing the, you know, they've, they've dedicated a lot of lanes for for grocery pickup. Um, and, you know, I, I saw, I, I haven't used that, but I saw this one uh, person get it, and like four Walmart employees came out and were like just, you know, team loading the car with groceries. It was pretty, you could tell it was like a priority that they had a lot of, a lot of associates really working on it. So, so definitely at the store level, they're doing a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that particular, the, there's also that pickup, uh, curbside, uh, experience and they've, uh, they continue to greatly expand that. So I know in California they added, uh, a ton of stores with uh, curbside pickup, which certainly works well for groceries and those sorts of things. Uh, and then when you talk about Walmart, it's hard to uh, not talk about Target. Um, and uh, a couple of interesting things have happened at Target lately. They, they've done a few interesting partnerships. We, I think, in the past have talked about their Harry's partnership. I can't remember. Did we talk about the Casper partnership on the show yet? We did. I think we did, yep. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, they've been doing these, these uh, partnerships with some of these digitally native brands. Um, and then... Uh, this month, they acquired Grand Junction, which is a same-day delivery service, um, which is interesting. So they're they're now um, offering same-day delivery for for a num- for a subset of their products. Um, you know, they used to have this partnership with Curbside, and uh, they they abruptly canceled that partnership, and then they've turned out and acquired a same-day delivery. So that's that's a interesting uh thing to think about at target is it certainly seems like target doesn't feel like curbside pickup is the the best solution for them and and same day home delivery is going to be a good solution uh and i forget what they call it but they also launched a new service which is kind of their version of prime pantry that's sort of a a a bulk replenishment service this month as well yeah it starts with an r i can't remember the name either we'll get our intern on it while we while we go on One of the last companies to report Q2 every year is uh, Alibaba, and it's because they are a Chinese company that has is held by a U.S. entity in Hong Kong. It's it's kind of a complicated way that that you have to do things if you're a Chinese company. Uh, so they came out this week and blew away expectations uh, across the board. So the stock's hitting new highs, uh, and there's a lot of really interesting things on that conference call. Uh, one of the things that was interesting is their growth is really reaccelerated at Alibaba. So Wall Street was expecting 49% growth. That, that was kind of a stretch, and they came in at 56%. Um, and they their adjusted EBITDA margins are north of 50%. So um, you know if you if you look at kind of the pure marketplace model, there's there's almost no cost in there. So so there's you know Cogs is the whatever it costs to push bits around on a computer and, and over the wire. And, and then there's some sales and marketing and some R and D and that's about it. So, so 50% net margins, so pretty, pretty crazy. Their cloud computing platform that competes with AWS is doing really well. And it was a big contributor to that. Um, they also cited uh, Taobao, which is their P2P kind of marketplace. They've changed the UX and Jason, I thought you would find this uh, interesting. They did a big, big personalization project at Alibaba that rolled out. Um, and they said that that's driving a lot of growth where they're they're learning more and more about their customers that are dry, buy, buying from the marketplace and, and what to recommend to them and get them to buy across the whole family of services and products. The 
Another thing that, that's really interesting with Alibaba is just like Amazon, they are doing a lot more in physical retail. They've been buying some physical retail, opening stores, uh, and a couple of interesting things the CEO said. Uh, he said, imagine a store where you can pick up items from the shelf, and at the same time, maybe there's stuff that's not in the store that you can scan with your phone. And then you just tell the store, you know, look, just have everything de- delivered to my house. And it just goes there because you have stuff to do after you go shopping. Um, another example uh, they used is, uh, let's see, you, you go to the grocery store and get something for dinner, but then you, you didn't know what you wanted for the rest of the week, so you just want to order a meal online. So what they're seeing from the Chinese consumer, and it sounds a lot like the U.S. consumer, is that the, they're looking for spontaneity, convenience, and speed, and total flexibility that, that favors the customer versus the retailer. So that's what they're really building towards. They call that new retail. And here's their quote on that. With new retail, satisfying ever-increasing consumer expectations is no longer an incremental game. It's disruptive. And in the same sense that we, we're going to have to we're going to have to disrupt e-commerce first and embrace the physical world and, and kind of just tear down all the barriers between them. So it's very flexible. It's kind of like beyond even kind of the normal things we think about in omni-channel. So these seamless experiences between the on and offline world is what Alibaba is trying to build. Uh, and um, uh, what's interesting is as they go into the more physical stores, they're they're kind of merging the marketplace in there. So just like we've, we've talked about on the show, it's that concession type model is really – Kind of happening in the physical retail world there in China, and we haven't seen that in the U.S., but it is going to be interesting to watch that uh, and, and see if that kind of makes its way over here. Yeah, for sure. the 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 new retail model that Alibaba talks about it's not entirely hypothetical either. They've actually opened a handful of these next generation grocery stores. They call Hema, and so there there's actually some video tours of them available online. I'll try to put a a link in the show notes. Um, but what's interesting is when you design a store from scratch for some of those experiences versus, you know, most of the stores we're familiar with in the U.S. was a traditional store that they retrofitted a buy online pickup in store or a home delivery service or something too. Um, it's pretty interesting to see how the store uh, looks different when it's designed from scratch to do that. So uh, one of the, the utilities that I found interesting is they they literally have this conveyor belt in the uh, the store with these hooks that like pick up bags of groceries and lift them uh, out of the store, or, like into a depot area for home delivery. Um, and so the in-store shoppers run around, they, they use a you know mobile phone to, to uh, get the list of items that they're going to uh, ship home for a customer. And then they like, you know, super efficiently just, just hang these bags on a hook, scan a barcode and uh, that bag gets shuttled off somewhere to, for for uh, home delivery, so there's a couple interesting things like that. They they heavily rely on barcodes in the store for product information, so you can you know scan a, a a QR code to get you know product information about all the products in the store. Um, China doesn't have the same labeling laws that we do in the U.S., so there's even more need to to learn about products for for uh, uh, discerning shoppers in in China. So so just some kind of interesting evolution of the the store and for your first point, they're making so much money that they have significant resources to invest in figuring out the future of retail. And like almost everyone else, they've kind of figured out that the long-term future of retail isn't exclusively online. So they're they're putting some some uh, real resources in figuring out what the 
uh, physical store of the future looks like in a digitally disrupted world. And so, you know, I, for one, am and thrilled to see them uh, trying to do that. Um, and I think that that is all the news we had for listeners this this uh, week. So as a special treat, we have not wasted a perfectly good hours of our <laughs> listeners' time. Um but we certainly would encourage listeners to give us feedback. So uh, as always, we have a Facebook page. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear us talk about or, or folks you'd like to hear from um, or just suggestions of what we're doing well or what we can improve, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. And, of course, if you love the show, uh, shoot over to iTunes and give us that five-star review. That's super important, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, and until next week, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.